Hey, thank you for joining us today. This is Rebecca Tapia, your podcast host. If you're finding any value of this podcast, please do share it and leave a review. And also, nothing discussed here is formal medical, legal, or financial advice. And this is not a patient-doctor relationship. It is really just a couple of people sitting around, or maybe just myself, discussing difficult topics related to aging parents. Enjoy. Thank you so much for being here. So welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me on another exciting episode of Real Conversations About Aging Parents. I am so thrilled to have Cecilia here with us. We met several weeks ago at a group of physicians that came together to share and talk. And when she heard what I was doing, she was very gracious to agree to come on the podcast and talk more about it. Welcome. How are you? Yes, I'm doing well. It's so lovely to be here and chatting with you. Thank you. So tell us, before we get into your story, just tell me a little bit about what you do nowadays, any hobbies you have, what's your life looking like these days? Yeah, so I'm a full-time gastroenterologist here in New Jersey. I became a life coach about a year and a half ago, more to heal my own wounds. But as you know, once you've healed yourself, you want to help others. Interesting things about me right now, I'm on my, probably my 14th parenting book. <laughs> I'm trying to survive <laughs> the preteen years. So always looking to improve my parenting skills. I feel like frustration gets the best of me sometimes. So it's, I love to like learn new skills and then apply it in real time. And hope, hopefully I feel like I'm planting the seeds so that they will be better people than our generation. How old are your kiddos? I have an eight-year-old boy, 10-year-old girl, and 11-year-old girl. Oh, bless you. <laughs> yes. So That's at the present family. moment, most of it is related to the two daughters. Oh, yeah. So I have a 12-year-old girl, so you're going to have to ship me some of those books when you're done. <laughs> with them. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you for sharing that. Tell me your story about your parents. Yeah, so I think I wanted to highlight like my father's relationship, but we can go wherever. So my family immigrated from Peru. I came here when I was one years old. Shortly after our arrival, my father kind of exited out and he showed up in my life periodically over the years. And so I really had a very like distant relationship, I'll say with him for probably most of my upbringing, a lot of resentment and anger. And I found out he had prostate cancer maybe like seven or eight years ago. And it was like, I tried to connect, but I always felt like it just never was like a meaningful relationship. I felt like oftentimes it was more out of like, I need money situation. But what happened with the beauty of my coaching journey is that I, my perspective about all of this and you know, trauma and his own like journey, I think gave me a lot of compassion for myself, which then I could extend to him. So, so that's the beautiful, what I call my hero's journey is that, you know, I had this certain beliefs that I was able to open up perspective. And then I feel like our last two years were so beautiful. I mean, well, so does that mean that you ended up being raised by your mother? Yes. So I was raised oh. by a single mother in California. And how many and siblings? Two brothers. Did I have two older brothers. Two older brothers. Okay. So let's go back before your transformation with the life coaching. If we had to go back and pick the two or three most painful thoughts about your dad, what would those be? 
I think it was probably like, why am I not good enough? I felt like the reason he left was a lot about me as his daughter. I think the other thought, which extended from that, was I never felt good enough because I think there was this underlying tone that my father left so we couldn't hold him together. So I, I think I had a lot of like self-judgment about myself. And even when I would succeed in school and I got all the accolades and people said, you're doing great, I still feel like I never felt like it was about. And when you did have this intermittent contact with him, like maybe like from zero to 18, what did that look like? Was it once a year you'd get a card or did you call him or who was really reaching out? It was, he would periodically show up. So we had a, my uncle, his brother, so he would have a party and like my dad would be there and we'd, so I feel like his family, it's interesting because it's the same sort of household. He was younger. My father's much older, but I always looked at their family because he was very like involved with his four kids, my cousin. And I always wondered like, why couldn't we have that same kind of household? But I feel like he, in his way, tried to get us together so every few years he just like we'd see each other at like this family party and what was that interaction like was he asking you how you were doing was was it like nothing ever happened what did that look like yeah I think he would sit with us for a little bit and he was very a social guy so you know he'd spend like maybe 20 minutes with us like how's it going and then I felt like he was all about like the party and the friends or we'd visit, I remember a couple of times they, my father and mother both had tire shops and we would like go visit him. And again, he was very much like there with his friends buying beers. He would definitely invite us in to have a meal there, but it was very superficial. He never really asked about how school was, if there was any challenges and from talking to my mother, he never really gave us a lot of funds to help raise us. And I, one really painful moment I remember was, I think we had showed up at like my uncle's house for Christmas and he had brought gifts for my cousins and we had nothing. And, and that was like, it was very painful. Did he end up having another family or kids somewhere? He did. Was he that had a... So he was what we call a womanizer. He had many women, and I think that's what ultimately broke up the marriage. But he did marry somebody, I think when I was like eight or 10, and she had a child. So it was like his stepkid. And we, we, we didn't have a relationship with them. Okay. And so when did this all change for you? Or what, what age were you when, when you said maybe seven to eight years ago it started to change or... So I feel like through medical school, the few contacts I got were him calling me saying, like, I need money for this and that. And I initially was sending what I could, but then, you know, parents influence one another. My mom was like, why are you giving him money? He's just spending it on his friends and women. And, you know, I almost like was like, you're right. I have like no obligation to this. And so I started 
just the last few times before the coaching experience, I was just like, I just don't have money. Cause at that point I was a new attending. I had all these loans. I was starting my own family. So I basically was like, I'm not, I'm not giving you any more money. And so what I'd say about that is that I probably like as a new attending, I probably saw him maybe another one time before I really dove into like the whole coaching aspect of, oh, wait, I'm sorry. There was one other really painful moment. <laughs> My father and mother had become friendly, not in any romantic way, but she was sort of his, one of his only kind of like people that were helping him because at this point my uncle was very sick with bladder cancer I decided that I wanted to fly my father out to meet my children because he very rarely asked about them and in my brain I was like maybe he's matured and he wasn't good for his children but perhaps with the grandchildren it would be a different relationship and I flew him out with my mother and my brother for Christmas. And he barely engaged with my children. He decided to stay in his bedroom except to come out to eat. And at that point, and I was right before COVID, I felt like that was the end of our relationship. I felt like I had given so much and it just wasn't given back. And, and I, at that point I had signed off basically. So that was like max effort. That's a lot of coordination. And how did your kids react to that? Or did they have any expectations of that? No, I think he barely engaged. They never really asked me. I think my husband, he saw my pain and even my in-laws had come to meet him and he just wasn't that interested. So it kind of wasn't discussed more than my husband and I. And then now when I talked about it with my children, like only my oldest really remembers, I think she was maybe four or five. But I had that sort of ideology that it would all like come together and it just did. Yeah. And when you said you, you sought out some life coaching training, was it specifically because of your dad or was it a confluence of medical training and other issues? Yeah. So I came to coaching in the midst of COVID. I was like, super burnt out. I think that difficult childhood I talk about helped me to compartmentalize my emotions. And what happened with COVID is I couldn't control this beast of a virus and I almost fell apart. I was waking up crying. I was anxious, changing four times a day. You know, it was just the midst of it. And and I remembered, I'm so thankful that I had gone to a wellness conference like right before COVID. And I met a woman who told me how coaching had changed her life. And at the time it was very woo. And I was like, okay, I don't really understand it. But, and in that crisis mode, I remembered, let me reach out to this girl, Susan. And I called her and she told me about coaching. And then I started coaching. And for me, the top priority was like the burnout. I, I was showing up frustrated and angry, not sleeping. And I just felt like I couldn't continue to work how I had in, in that crisis. And then the beauty of my journey was that when I 
realized the power of my thoughts, I dove in a little deeper. And my plan for that was really to heal myself and maybe my mom and brothers who had had, we had all grown up with this trauma. I did not imagine that it would have such profound effects to then help my father. So when you, when you say help your father, you mean help your issues with your father or are you thinking yes. your father? No, my issues with my father. Oh, okay. Okay. And so you were coached at one point and then became a coach as well. Is that, is that That's how that went? Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you didn't come into needing coaching specifically because of your dad, but once you learned that skill, then you were able to apply it more broadly and then probably realize there were other areas that it could totally benefit. And I've heard you mention the traumatic childhood with your dad not being there and you wasn't sending any resources to help. Is that mainly what you're referring to? Were there other traumas that that you felt like were, were kind of bundled up with him other than him not being there, him not supporting you guys, or maybe him coming in and out? Do you, do you point to anything else as part of that trauma? Yeah, I mean, like we grew up in a very like gang infested area, a lot of drugs. I have my own sexual abuse history. I think well, my mom pursued work to provide for us. So I think just feeling like very absent in the household when I had a lot of emotions and not being able to really deal with them. And I'm lucky that that education was my saving grace because I gravitated to books. And so that was sort of my escape. And it propelled, obviously, my success thereafter. But I think if I hadn't found education, I, my outcome could have been totally different. How, how did your brothers deal with it? Not very well. I mean, if you look at us emotionally, we're disconnecting. I think we all learn to sort of suppress our own demons. And I'll say that I was the only one to attend my father's funeral. And I don't blame anyone different reasons for that. But I think I was going to be in the same vein had I not had coaching. Like I would have heard dad pass, but that would have been out. And for our listeners, I don't know a lot about life coaching. Can you just give them a a one minute orientation to what we're talking about as far as when you said the power of thoughts, those types of things? Yeah. So I think life coaching teaches you to open up your perspective because what happens when you've had trauma, especially you develop these thought errors. And so you start to believe these patterns about yourself, like the belief that I wasn't good enough. Right. If you talk to an outsider, they would be like, oh, my God, you grew up in that and look how successful you've been. But I was still at the top of my like the pinnacle of my career and still had beliefs that I wasn't good enough. And so coaching is where you talk with a person or, you know, a group call and you really unburden yourself of these beliefs. And then you start to realize, like, wait a minute, if somebody else in that situation could think something different, like. You realize that that's just a story and a pattern you've had and you can change your story. So for me, I used to believe I was like this victim of like all these horrible things. And now I realize like, yeah, although I wish I had never gone through them, this is how I'm like a hero or a heroine and all the gifts that I came out of that traumatic growth, I would say. So what's your new story? 
after the thought work? Yeah, I think I think those traumas and chronic stresses are sort of I look at them as like strengths of myself to connect with people who've been through difficult times. I I tend to have a lot more empathy and compassion for people. And I think my future is to, because I do gastroenterology, is I try to drop nuggets in my day-to-day practice, but we'll talk about coaching. But I think so much is connected with the mind and body. And I try to have people open up perspective that, yes, while you're ruling things out with diagnostic testing, let's work on you and self-care and perhaps some of these sensations you are experiencing are emotional burdens or stresses or traumas that no one's ever discussed. And, you know, the model of medicine is like, we have to rule out all these diseases. You have a certain time frame, So we don't really have the capacity to really delve deeper into these topics. So this is sort of where I see my second portion of my career. Like I had to go through all this so that I can help people who perhaps can share with similar you know, aspects of my upbringing and realize like I can overcome this. I can change. I can be a light despite all this darkness. Wow. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, just sharing it now, I think is, is going to help people. When, when you talk about the, when we first met, I don't know if you remember this, but you looked at me and you said, you know, through coaching, that was the only way I was able to forgive my father before he died. And it was such a profound statement. And that's when I knew I really wanted to talk to you. So can you walk me through, so you acquired the skill, you wrote a new story, which you just shared, but specifically with regard to your father, what new thought did you adopt and what did that lead to? I think through coaching, it started my journey of reframing thoughts that I wasn't this victim, that I had a lot of strengths, I could love myself. Um, And then I started diving into somatic work because as you, I'm sure you know, a lot of trauma, we have to, we can't just thought swap. You have to really go into your body and release and unburden. And so for me, I had to do a lot of my own healing and I had a lot more compassion. Like I used to think I just wasn't good enough. And now I can look at my inner child and just say, oh, she's just afraid. Like she didn't have this nurturing relationship growing up. So it's no wonder she, this part of me believes that she's never good enough. And so I've learned to have more compassion for myself. And it's through that journey that I could then look at my father and remember that his parents died when he was around eight years old. And he grew up around the street. He lived with an uncle. Like he also never had a really loving relationship. And so For me, I was able to see him as this like broken man that had his own inner demon and that he probably suffered his own trauma that I'll never know. But I had a lot more compassion for him. And it wasn't to say he still wasn't a good father in my eyes, but I didn't tie it to myself. Like it wasn't because of me that he had been absent. I saw him as like his own person and that we were both like traumatized people. And I wanted his last sort of chapter to be more cohesive and loved despite all the things of the cancer diagnosis and the history we had had together. 
I wanted to give a little peace in those last chapters. Why did you want that? Because I wanted him to stop suffering. That was how I viewed it. And so my belief was I'm here to love my dad no matter what. And and that helped you to do, was that a discussion you had with him one day? Was that you just, did he live close to you? Like, what did that look like? So, no, I think I had gotten a lot of cultural messaging that you're the daughter, you should take him on. But the reality is that I'm the full-time worker or my husband is home. He never made a, an ounce of any attempt to get to know my children. So I just felt like that's their story. And thankfully for coaching, I, who knows, I might've been like sucked into taking care of him. For me, I felt like I, that was a no boundary. And so what it looked like was he ended up moving in with my mom and brother in California. And I was helping send money to take care of him. And unfortunately, his medical condition declined. And both my brother and mom worked. So it became a safety issue that he was like leaving the stove on. He, the house almost burned down one time. And so I saw in my mom, like her almost collapsing because she couldn't like manage him and he was not like he was like we're not married you don't listen I don't listen to you and and then the family that was like pushing me to take him on it seemed like no one wanted to take him on he had burned bridges across and then the ex-wife who knows what happened to her and so I made a decision that he needed to go back to our home country of Peru and I would be able to provide for him even better which AIDS and you know the other issue was like he wasn't eating and he expected these meals prepared and that just wasn't the reality so I basically through my, my cousin helped me we connected with my aunt in Peru and she had an extra bedroom there and she was home for her own cancer diagnosis and so I was sending money every month to help to take care of his food, all his medications, et cetera. And for me, that was like enough of like him being well cared for and being with family who he loved and giving him the foods he needed and like 24 hour care. Like he was never alone. What was your relationship like? Was this like transactional? Like you were kind of managing around him and sending money, but did y'all actually connect like in a conversation or you mean you thought about him differently and you, you did things differently, but it was always the same. Like he wasn't really engaged. Well, no, I called him probably more so once he was sent, once he went over because he had this belief that we, everybody was abandoning him. And I was trying to say, no, the perspective is we can care for you better there. And so I was probably talking to him like twice a week at that point, like via like WhatsApp or, you know, Telegram, I think was the latest one. And what were those conversations like? Was he considerate? Was he upset? Was he? It was a mixed bag. Honestly, some days he didn't really want to engage with me. It was like, I feel abandoned. I feel alone. I want to go back. 
And I just kept saying, like, you can come back, but there's you're not going to get the same level of care. Like, I just felt like I would find out he, like, died on the street or he would have burned down this house. So for me, I just didn't want him to come back. And then he actually saved up some of the money and sent him. That's a whole other story. And came back. And his he declined even rat, more rapid. Like he came walking and then he would basically like wheelchair bound because he wasn't getting adequate nutrition. Nobody was caring for him. He would like wander off to friends and be gone for days. So I think that was sort of the last time when he realized, no, I have better care in Peru. But in the meantime, those conversations were like twice, two, about twice a week. And they were from anywhere from him crying about how painful his cancer and the bones was anywhere from like, he did like a couple of times tell me how he was sorry for not being a good father. A few times were about, we started talking about like his own childhood and his, the town he grew up in and his close friends. So it was really a nice time for us to sort of get to know each other in ways that I had never experienced before. So I'm sure it struck you that he was saying he felt lonely and abandoned, and that's exactly how his family felt for most of their existence, right? And so this was somebody who wanted to be cared for and looked after and supported, but, and I'm not going anywhere with this, I don't have a a final point other than observing how that must feel when that actually was your reality and experience. Of being alone and abandoned. And when he faced that, his expectation was that you would stop what you were doing, send money, which he didn't send, send time and show consideration that, that you didn't receive at a much more vulnerable part of your lifetime. Yeah. And for many years, like I said, I lived in this, like, how dare he, like, he has no rights to ask for anything of us. But like I said, I think through my own compassion, I was able to extend some of that. And I wanted his last chapter to be a, li- a more meaningful relationship than all the bridges he had built. And that's something I took on a willing heart and with no expectations of my siblings giving anything. And it was stressful, you know, because he's there. I'm having to sort of coach him, you know, through his own, you know, struggles that just through the process of cancer and dying. And then my own struggles where he'd like trigger me, like sometimes he wouldn't want to talk to me and it just felt like he's like re-abandoning. So it was very painful for on many levels. And then also like the cultural dynamics of like family saying like, you should be there. You should drop your career and go to Peru and take care of him. So I was thankful I had coaching in that time because I was able to say, okay, message noted. I don't believe that. I'm going to let it go. How did you do that? I know it sounds easy the way you just said it, but it's not as far as like, I shouldn't say it like that. Many, many, many professional women go through that pressure from their family. And you talked about having coaching and boundaries, but what was the work there? Like, what did, what did your brain say that helped sort of refute that, that cultural pressure? I think it was, you know, I, through this journey of the hero's journey, it's like, I have my back first. Like for me to care for everyone else, I have to take care of me. And I knew 
for me, it was preserving my little family, keeping my job and dad was at a distance just because I felt like that was the only way I could maintain it. I think he had disappointed me so many times before. And I just finally was like, that's it. Like, you are not going to come into my immediate home because A, I don't think he was the, the character of people I wanted to be around my family. But B, like, there was a lot of pain there. And I just felt for my own integrity and future longevity and relationship that I had to like have an absolute boundary of protecting my own self. And did your husband support that as well? Was he on the same page? Yes. Yeah. That's, that's he said, I mean, he did say if you, you need him to come, we'll figure it out. But I was very much of the idea that I, we had to preserve this, this unit and I wasn't willing to allow for that for now our family to be unburdened by caring for him and we would not have been able to maintain the level of care that we could provide in Peru right right so it never really entered your mind that you'd be a personal caregiver for him bathing you know dressing that kind of stuff so your brain went about figuring out how you could support a better version of the last years of his life Um, and that it sounds like and I know I've asked you this before but it sounds like that was a core belief that you just wanted him to have a different ending to his life because he was your father. Yes. Not necessarily. And I felt. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, and I felt like, just like I had this broken inner child, he had this also broken inner child. And that he had made a lot of mistakes, but at his core, there was a kid that never had a foundation of love. And so how could he then love others in a different way when he was so traumatized? So it sounds like it was an opportunity to, for you to express love to someone you had felt did not know how to reciprocate that, but that that was okay because you had a mindset that, that this was what was right for you, but with some boundaries in place. And you said something earlier that I think is important, which is that, your brothers didn't go to the funeral, but that you didn't d- judge them, that everybody had a different journey. And I think that's really important because I think when we talk about this topic, I always worry we're going to fall into this, you know, you should or you shouldn't, or this is the right thing, or look how this person did this, you should do that. And that's not really what this is about. This is, you know, finding what's true and authentic for you, whatever that, whatever boundaries that is, whatever, and liking your reasons for it, right? So it's not well, I'm doing this so that, you know, my aunt thinks I'm a great daughter or something like that. Like, I wouldn't necessarily think that's a good reason for myself. So how do you manage your thoughts about people who would make a different decision that would be in that same situation and say, you know, that's not right for me. I have to cut off communication and whatever happens, happens and and that kind of thing. I mean, I'm very respectful of people's own journey. I do tell people my journey of how I healed that relationship, but it's never with the thought that I'm going to like influence them. I think I lived in that like cut off and be gone for so long. Um, But it was like a heavy for my own like spirit. I always felt like this heaviness burden on me and it just feels like much lighter and freer when I'm like letting go of things that 
I used to carry and now it's like not part of my journey anymore. But I have a lot of like compassion for what people have gone through. So I am very respectful of people. If they're open to hearing another perspective, then, you know, obviously I would share a little bit more about what, how it transpired for me. But I think like you said at one point, you have to live for your own intention, your own values, regardless of how other people perceive it or believe their own beliefs. At the end of the day, we have one life to live and we want to live it with our own integrity and values and with the intentionality of our heart and spirit. And that's sort of my journey that I definitely fulfilled that. When did he end up passing away? He passed away in December. Oh, so just recently then? Interesting. And I traveled for the funeral and it was in Peru. I knew he was imminently passing. He was like in liver and renal failure. And I kind of hedged, do I go to be there in that last moment? But I decided that I wasn't going to go until he passed because it was also COVID times and there had been delays with like even getting a funeral arranged and you know part of that was like the belief of like my patients and the inconvenience of work but I decided I was with him on like the virtual call I think he he would basically not quite very animal but still somewhat responsive but not verbal and I was able to tell him I loved him in that moment and I did see his eyes open and he gasped and I I felt like he heard that message. And to me, that was like beautiful. And thank you for sharing it. I know these are very personal things to talk about and I appreciate your, your willingness to be open. Your mom, how did your mom experience all of this? It sounds like she got pulled in at some point and has, has that changed your relationship with your mom? If she, I mean, it's kind of a, I don't know if it's a precedent or not, but it, if she was in need help, like what's that relationship like? Or how do you think about her? Oh, my mom is like my hero. I look at her like, I don't know if I, I mean, maybe I could, but this man who left us with my children and moved on to another family and to take him on in his like most critical hour, I think she has like the biggest heart. And he was definitely very triggering for her. But I, I also took her on as like a pseudo client because she was going through all her own issues with his expectations of her, even though she wasn't his wife and the expectations of the family to take him on. But I just see her journey of she stepped forward despite all the terrible things he had done to her and she forgave him. And she flew with me to the funeral and gave this great speech about all the positive he was, like he helped them immigrant with country. He always, when she felt like she didn't have certain skill sets, he was like, you can do anything. So in those moments when they were together, he always was like, it doesn't matter the circumstance, you, you can do it, power through. He was, had a lot of like positive attributes and I, I didn't know that so much about him. So it's nice to hear in that in the funeral like how she sort of came to terms with him and, and wanted his legacy to be left. And then she played a, a song by Pedro Infantes, which is I'll Always Be the King. 
and it's like his him writing out in like this as a strong individual who blessed all these gifts and what's interesting is i was surprised when we were burying him she committed to coming back a year later so she's almost like taking on sort of the role of a wife even though she's like the ex-wife and I haven't delved into her if, like, that's what you really want, or is this the pressure from, like, expectation? But she told me recently that she, like, bought her plane ticket and she's going to go do, like, the first year anniversary ceremony down there. But I, I think that she's just, I just admire that strength. So, so one thing I wanted to go back and, and just sort of point out and talk about is he didn't have to change for you to have a different experience. You changed your mindset. You did some questioning, some curiosity. You got clear on what you wanted, which is varies for, you know, different people. And then you executed it. But the most important thing I think you said was you did it freely and without resentment. And it would be hard, I would think, to get to, end, to the end of someone's life knowing what you went through and not feel resentment. Would you, do you, do, were, was that an, an emotion you were able to, to get, get out of the equation? Yeah, I think I did a lot of journaling. I have had hours of coaching. I've I think I process that emotion and it still comes up for me at times when I talk to people and they say, oh, my dad passed. I got this chunk of money. I got this house. And like, I look at my life and I'm like thankful I haven't had this successful career, but I've, I've got nothing. <laughs> In fact, I think I took care of him. I'm going to take care of my mom. and. So it does come up at times, the resentment of like, why couldn't life be different? Looking at my uncle's family, I get, you know, activated sometimes because, you know, I see how close they are. And like, I'm like, they were in the same household. Like, how, how is this possible? But I think when those emotions come up, we teach in coaching about processing emotion. I I allow that feeling to come on and I notice it with curiosity. Where is it in my body? I, I, I deep breathe through it. Sometimes I do have the journal of like, what are the thoughts that are fueling this? And then from there, I can like analyze it from more of a, a distant perspective and say, oh, I just got activated because of what I was thinking. But then I can sort of have choice of like, do I want to stay stuck in this or do I want to like, believe something different and so I have a lot of compassion for that little kid who does feel resentful and that part of that comes up I'm glad you said that because I think there's a misconception that that doing therapy or coaching or counseling is a magic bullet and then once you've sort of conquered it then it never comes back and, and the truth is these are brain patterns and mindset is much more about management of the patterns and the tools to get around them and not some promise that that this will never come up again and you'll never feel like watching a family on Father's Day is not, you know, difficult or something. And the, the objective would not necessarily be that. It would be that these are these might come up again or they will come up again. And here are the tools I have 
to, to get through them. So that said, tell me a little bit more about what you do, what your coaching business looks like these days. What are you focusing on? Yeah, so currently I'm focusing a lot on the mind-gut connection and my day job. I'm a gastroenterologist and I just see, you know, the patients that come in with the chronic abdominal pain they've had the full workup and it's like we can't sort of find an etiology. And so I try to give little tools in the office about how sometimes these are unprocessed emotions or sensations, but they're messages from our body that something's out of balance, whether that's our diet or sleep, self-care boundary. And so unfortunately, like I said, the confines of the medical system, you can't really delve too deep. So what I want to build with my coaching and I'm doing is helping people have resources because I feel like almost everyone's dealing with chronic stress and trauma, whether you know it or not, especially after COVID, we've all been through significant trauma. However, that looks for people, they may not recognize that language. But what happens with these stressors and trauma is that energy gets embedded in our tissues. And unless we discharge that through movement, play, laughter, connection, et cetera, it sort of just piles on and it manifests in us being like angry and frustrated, shamed and overwhelmed. In addition to like manifesting at like in, on medical conditions, right? Our sugar gets out of whack. We gain weight. Sometimes these are patterns, like you said, where I don't want to deal with an emotion. And so I choose to go for food or a drink to kind of manage that emotion. And so I want people to learn that your toolkit is very unique to you, but knowing what are the things that activate you and how can you manage that to serve you for overall well-being. So my niche is more the gut, like people who are dealing with a lot of like chronic gut issues, irritable bowel, like constipation, reflux, fatty liver. But as you know, you dive into one subject and then you heal from one and then you realize, well, I can apply this to like my father and my sibling and my children. And so I think my whole like future aspect for people is helping to build community. And I would love to have this membership in the fall where we sort of lean on each other. We learn about different resourcing, like for example, grounding, right? When we're in the midst of a stressful situation, really getting out of the thoughts of our head and really being present, feeling the ground, because that's how you short circuit that like surge and like stress and trauma and sometimes you don't even have the words if something just activated you and for you to function in the world and not like go off on your boss or throw a tantrum or hit your child right it's like we have to we have to embody what we want to be and but you have to learn to pause and see what your own priorities are and these are things we've just never been taught and now that I have this knowledge my own experiences, I feel like I'm like the perfect person to help people through this next chapter. Oh, awesome. And, and where do they find you if they wanted to reach out? So I'm on my name. So www.ceciliamananomd.com. Awesome. And I'll put, I'll definitely put that in the show notes. I think this was a really, really good, deep discussion. And I just appreciate you being willing to come talk about it. I think, like I said, it's going to help a lot of people and I just very much enjoyed listening to your story. Yes. And I just want to tell people everybody's journey looks different. 
it took many years. Don't think I like the next day woke up to like love on my father, right? It took me going through my own journey of healing that then I was able to extend to others. And however it looks like for you is okay. Don't feel any expectations, but I would have you pause and just see what is it that you want and live your life intentionally. That's beautiful. I couldn't have ended it any better. Thank you so much. It was so nice to meet you. Yes, you also. Hey, everyone. It's Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you really enjoyed the podcast. I am here to let you know I can be found on RebeccaTapiaMD.com. You can come over there to learn about my new course launching this summer, dealing with mindset for aging parents, getting prepared, all the good stuff, sharing my opinions and life lessons. Uh, Also could just join my email list so I can share more about my thoughts about these podcasts and more insights there. Thank you so much for being here.